Yehuda Geber with a, another podcast of Jewish History Soundbites. And today I want to start off with a, a story that happened to me. Um, I was once encountered a, one of these, you know, people we, we encounter, you, you know, one of these self-professed uh, Mishnah Brewer guys, um, knows Mishnah Brewer kind of well and feels that um, it's the last word in Jewish law in the 21st century, and uh, makes sure it's it takes it upon himself as a as a as a somewhat of a holy mission to ensure that others um, live their lives that way as well. And I encountered one of them, and there was this discussion, you know, between the two of us about I don't even remember regarding what um, about some sort of custom that the Mishnabura seemed to say one way, and he had caught me red-handed uh, acting in a different way, which was an accepted custom in other communities and in earlier Paiskim before the Mishnabura. And he objected to this uh, practice because you can't do anything against the Mishnabura. So, you know, I don't back down easily. So I said to him, you know, it was Chaf Sivan recently. Did you fast? And he said, Chaf Sivan, fast day, what do you mean? I said, well, you say that you follow the Mishnabura. And the Mishnabura and Hilchas Tainus, at the very end, in Simon Tafkuf Pei, he says that the custom is to fast on Chaf Sivan Bechol Malchus Poland, the entire kingdom of Poland, of Poland. Um, so he could have easily gotten out of it by saying that he doesn't reside in the kingdom of Poland, but the mission brewer does bring it down. So um, he wasn't sure about what to do. So the conversation kind of ended there, but the idea got me thinking that there are many of us who aren't aware, and I'm not coming to <laughs> say anyone should fast, but the idea, the story of Chav Sivan and what it's all about is definitely a very, very important event in Jewish history, enough that, that the people of that generation actually created a fast. It was based on an earlier fast day of a pogrom, a blood libel that had happened in France in the 12th century. But the main reason for the fast that the Mishnah Brewer is referring to is what's known in Jewish history as Gzeras Tach Vitat, or in general history, the Kazakh uprisings of 1648 and 1649. And that really was a watershed uh, event for the Jews of Poland, the mainstream Jewish community in the world at the time, and really created long-lasting changes in Jewish society of Europe um, with its... Uh, repercussions being felt for a long time afterwards. So what really was this major event that the Vad Ha'arbaratzis, the Council of the Four Lands, went ahead after this event and made a fast day with Slichos and Kinnis to say, and a special Kelmale to say, all because of the events of Tach v'tat. What was these events? So let's get a little bit of the background. The Jews of Eastern Europe at the time are living in the Polish kingdom. The Polish kingdom is pretty much the largest, one of the largest, maybe the largest uh, kingdom in the entire European continent. And the Jews um, lived there 
better than they had lived in any other place in Europe up to that time. It was the golden era, the golden age of the Jews of Poland before Tachvetat. Um, the the uh, kings, the Polish kings, had invited the Jews to come east from Germany and France, from Ashkenaz, and the Jews were happy to do so, to get away from the persecutions, the expulsions, to the hundreds of years of crusades and blood libels and whatnot that they had suffered in Ashkenaz, to be able to come to Poland and start a new life. And they were very successful there. <coughs> Excuse me. And the Polish kingdom was a good home for the Jews. And there was an interesting dynamic between the different populations within the Polish kingdom. The rulers were the Poles, and the way the Polish kingdom worked was that it wasn't just the king, it was the aristocracy, the big magnates who owned the properties, who owned these massive tracts of real estate across the kingdom, the nobility, the princes, they were... They had the power to actually elect the kings. It was a somewhat democratic system where the nobility had the right to vote. The son of the king didn't automatically become the king. It was a right to vote, uh, but a right to vote only amongst the uh, the nobility. It wasn't actually a democracy, um, but it was one of the most progressive kingdoms in the world at the time. Probably the most progressive. It had limited democracy to the nobility. It allowed religious freedom to the minorities within the country, which was completely unheard of in many other parts of Europe at the time. It allowed religious freedom um, to the Jewish population and to other minorities further east, the or ones who followed the uh, Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, which we'll get to in a second. So the aristocracy owns the land, they run the country, and then you have a Jewish minority who very often are, since the the uh, Bill of Rights that the Jews receive allow them to practice certain businesses, but other businesses they're not allowed to join and they're not to be a part of. So they uh, become very often the agents, tax collectors, the agents, the managers of the estates. Very often these noblemen live in castles far away. They own huge estates, huge pieces of land across many hundreds of miles and they have different managers managing different pieces of the estate, and very often the Jews find employment working for these uh, magnets. And then, in the eastern parts of the kingdom, which today is in the Ukraine, you have the Ruthenian or Ukrainian peasantry who live on the land, who they are serfs, they're essentially slaves, to the, to the nobility, to the princes, and they have to work the land, they have to pay the taxes, and they have to um, provide whatever the demands are of the nobility. And very often there are uprisings, there are revolts. The serfs don't like being serfs, and this is a common uh, event of the history throughout European history in any country throughout the Middle Ages and then the past the Middle Ages until the era of the serfs come to an end. And there's all types of uprisings. Now, who, there's another grouping of people who lives in these areas called Kazakhs. And they're trained horsemen, trained fighters, living a tribal life, sometimes living a communal life, depends where. And very often they also are suffering from the Polish kingdom. Very often the nobility wants the Kazakhs on their side because they want them to use, they want to use them and recruit them for their private armies. They have weapons, they're trained fighters, they're... They're trained killers to a certain extent, and they want to use them. But not always do the relationships go so smoothly. 
and there's uprisings all the time. Some worse than others, some are crushed, the revolts are crushed, some pretty easily, some last longer. But what happens this time in 1648 is a very powerful Cossack leader who had been a victim of, uh, of, uh, of what he felt was the crime perpetrated against him by a, a Polish nobleman. And his name was Bogdan Chmielniecki. And Bogdan Chmielniecki organizes the Cossacks and receives wide support from the serfs in the area and organizes a general uprising against the aristocracy, against the Polish nobility in the areas of the Ukraine, um, the central Ukraine where he was, and they start to fight, and it's a war against them. It's a war against the Polish nobility, it's a war against the aristocracy, but of course, very often the aristocracy is far away, and very often they see the agents of the aristocrats of the princes who would seem to be the Jews. And the Jews are tax collectors, as we said for them. They're managers of the estates. And there is always an element of anti-Semitism involved because the Ukrainian Orthodox Church created a ferment of anti-Jewishness, anti-Semitism. There was religious anti-Semitism in these parts that existed. You combine the natural anti-Semitism with the fact that there's a revolt going on, with the fact that the Jews are seen as part of the enemy, they're seen as connected to the Polish nobility and aristocracy to a certain extent, and there are widespread pogroms against the Jews in the areas that Chmelnitsky and other Cossack armies take to control. They cross the Dnieper River in the summer of, uh, and around now, around June of nineteen of six, excuse me, sixteen forty-eight, and they start moving west against the nobility and their armies. And this goes on throughout the summer. So there's community after community. Uh, falls, and there's a murder of Catholics, there's a murder of Poles, and there's a murder of Jews, and the Jews were very often involved in the defense of these towns. If the Cossacks were laying siege to a town, so the nobleman would organize his private army, he would recruit the local Jews of the town, and they would be fighting back the Cossacks. And if the Cossacks would conquer a town, they would kill the princes, they would kill the local Polish population, they would also kill the Jews. The Cossacks also made a treaty with another uh, tribal group of the east, the eastern parts of the Polish kingdom, called the Tatar, Tatars, Tatars, Tatars. There's different ways to pronounce it, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. And they, um, they were less interested in massacre, they were more interested in making money off of them as prisoners. And they would try to take as many people prisoner as possible, especially Jews, because the Jews had a reputation of redeeming their prisoners, and they would sell them on the slave markets further south in Turkey and even in North Africa, and there was a massive effort of pidyon shvuyim, of redeeming captive prisoners at the end of the uh, Chmelnitsky massacres. Now, was this similar to the medieval times where there was crusades, where the crusaders would give an ultimatum to Jewish communities, either you convert or die, and then people choose to die al-Kiddush Hashem. So over here, it's not so clear and it's not so simple if there was that choice, because converting to the Russian Orthodox Church or the Ukrainian Orthodox Church wasn't always the option. It wasn't so much of a religious war and more of a fight for rights, more of a revolt against the ruling, uh, the, the rulers. Um, so sometimes they did convert, and sometimes it did help them. And uh, the question is, how many converted and how many were willing to die al-Kiddush Hashem? 
So in the classic work of, which is the most famous and very well written, but not exactly, especially today, we understand he's not 100% uh, historically accurate, the famous work of Yevin Mitsula, which was written by someone who lived at the time, Reb Nassim Nata Hanover. And he wrote this, among many other books. There are, it gives a very, very clear picture of Jewish Poland before the Chmelnitsky massacres. It gives a very, very vivid and intense and powerful picture of the massacres themselves. A tremendous warehouse of information. Some of the things in there may not be 100% accurate. Some of them may be exaggerated. There are limitations in how much we can use the Yevon Metzula today to understand the Gzeris Tachvetat. But in any event, he says that there was a tremendous amount of dying of Kiddush Hashem. People were willing to die. They didn't want to convert. Again, the question is how much that was demanded of them. Maybe they weren't even given the choice. Very often they weren't. If they were killing the Polish nobility who were Catholic, and the Catholics were seen as the problem, and uh, they weren't giving them the option of converting to the, to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, then they might not have been giving the Jews the option either. Um, on the other hand, we do know that there are a lot of people who did convert from another person who lived at the time, who also wrote a book about the Chmelnitsky massacres. And he was Reb Shapsi Koyen, the Shach. The Shach lived at that time. He was a diet on the Vilna Bezdin. And the Chmelnitsky massacres did not end in 1649. In 1649, what happened was that the Polish nobility managed to put a stop to the Cossack advance and push them back to the other side of the Dnieper River, back into the Ukraine, into the middle of the Ukraine. And that part of the revolt was crushed, but the wars continue. Eventually, the Tsars in Russia go to war against the Polish kingdom. And the Polish kingdom is attacked from all sides. The, The Cossack revolt is revived again at a later time. And then the Swedes invade, King Gustav, something or another of Sweden, invades Poland, the, the northern war. And the northern part of the Polish kingdom, of course, is the Baltic states, Lithuania, Lita, and Vilna gets captured first by the Russians and later by the Swedes. And, um, and um, the, they're getting, the Polish kingdom is getting hit from all sides, and the Jews are suffering from the Cossacks, and then when the Poles take over that area, very often they may accuse the Jews of, of collaborating with the Cossacks against the nobility. And then they'll get in trouble from the Poles. And then the Russians, when they come, the Tsars were never friends of the Jews. That Later on, when the Tsars actually controlled part of Poland, we know, unfortunately, that the Tsars were not friends of the Jews. And the Swedes weren't that nice either. And um, they get they get hit from each side. So when the Wars come to the Vilna, where the Shach is, in 1655, which is already several years after the years of Tach Vatat, 1640 and 1649, and he has to go on the run, and he ends up in Czechoslovakia in a city called Halashui, which his Rebbe, the Rebbe Reb Heschel, who was a Rosh Hashiva in Lublin. When the, Shach, when the Shach was young, he first learned in Krakow by the Megine Shloima, by Rabbeinu Yeshua, in Krakow, by his yeshiva, and then later on he moved on to Lublin, where he learned by the Rebbe Reb Heschel. By the way, the Taz learned there at a similar time. They were both students of the Rebbe Reb Heschel, who was at a great yeshiva in Lublin, and was uh, one of the great uh, leaders of the Jewish people at the pre-Tach V'tat time. And interestingly enough, this whole Gzeris Tach V'tat is, is really the 
middle point between the old Jewish Poland of the pre-Tachvetat Poland, which was the golden era of Jewish Poland, the Ramah, and all the way up to Tachvetat, where it's already the Shach and the Taz, that 150, 200 years of the golden era. And then the post-Tachvetat era, eventually we come later on, about 100 years later, we come to the rise of Hasidus. We come later on, much later on, in certain areas to the rise of the yeshiva movement. That's the second half of the story of the Jews in Poland, is the more modern era. And it's really, this is the crossroads, and it covers all those geographical areas. The pogroms reach everywhere. And the tours that I lead to, with the various different groups, when we go through the Ukraine, or through Poland, or through Lithuania, we're following this very route, the route of the golden era of the Polish kingdom, following through the the breakdown of Tach V'tad, and then we come to the modern era, whether it's the early part of Hasidus in the Ukraine, whether it's the later part of Hasidus in Poland, whether it's the yeshiva movement in Lithuania, Belarus, this is exactly the route, and the crossroads of that route is Gzairus Tach V'tad. So the Shach writes in his recollections of Tachvetat, that a lot of people converted. And, and, and he says it very sadly, and with a lot of, you know, it's not, not easy to accept the fact that people were not willing to dial Kedush Maybe they weren't even given the choice. Maybe they had to convert. Maybe it wouldn't have helped to convert. Whatever the Cheshbainis were, but the reality is, is that it happened. How many people were killed in Tachvetat? Also, that's something that's changed over the years. Originally, they thought it was in the hundreds of thousands. The problem was that the Jewish population of the entire Polish kingdom wasn't in the hundreds of thousands. And we know that about a quarter, between a fifth and a quarter of all Jews in the Polish kingdom were killed during Tach V'tat, which is a huge amount. If you look at it as a percentage, a quarter of the population almost is wiped out. It ends up being in the numbers, though, that it was about 20,000 in the initial stage of that summer of 1648 and the beginning of 1649. And then by the end, the end, the end reaches close to 20 years later when a peace treaty is signed between the Polish kingdom and Russia in 1667, which is 19 years after the initial uh, revolt breaks out. If we count all the Jews killed during those 19 years, then it comes about to be between 40 and 50,000 at most and that is the amount that is killed, but it's such a fundamental break in that, in that it's such a des- destruction and devastation. The result of Tachvetat is people are doing a chesh ben nefesh. What happened? What was this devastation? It's the end of the golden era. Books are written about it. Kinnis are written. The Vad Ha'arba Ratzis decides to make a takana, to make a fast day of Chav Sivan. Why Chav Sivan? Because one of Chmelnitsky's cohorts, another Cossack leader, reached the town of Nemerov and Chavsivan and broke through the siege and destroyed the city. And hundreds of Jews are killed in Nemerov. It was one of the big, first huge massacres of Gzairus Tachvatat, a big famous city in the Ukraine of Nemerov. Later on, it became famous because Rav Nachman of Breslov, his famous student, Rav Nassen, it came from Nemerov. They called him. His name was Rabnasan Sternherz, but his, he came from the town of Nemerov. But Nemerov was always a famous Jewish town. And here the massacre at Nemerov took place in Chavsivan, in addition to the fact that it had always been somewhat of a fast day because of this earlier takana from the time of the Rishainim in France, where there had been a blood libel and a pogrom. So they decided to make Chavsivan the day to commemorate 
this devastation of Tachvatat and the Shach and the Taisis Yantif, Rebimta Lipman Heller, who was the Rav in Krakow at the time of Tachvatat. These people looked at it as a watershed time of their lives. They're dealing with Iguna questions afterwards. They're dealing with the devastation. They both write about it. They both wrote Kinnis about it. One of the greatest Jewish leaders of that generation, Rabbi Shamshin Me'ostropolia, who was a tremendous Mekobal, was murdered in the Gzairus Tachvatat. And uh, recently, actually, they redid his kever, built a beautiful oil. This is not just some Rebbe who lived recently. This is one of the G'dayli Hadar of the generation of Tach Vatat, was murdered and died al-Kiddush Hashem during that time. And they really built, they really did him justice. And they redid the Beisach Forest there in the Ukraine. We, I saw it recently with a, a group on one of our trips and built a nice, beautiful oil on his kever. And this is really the beginning of the end of, uh, of the golden era of the Jews of Poland, and it paves the way to a certain extent for the next stage, because after this devastation, the only thing that can happen after such a low blow, after such a tremendous loss, is that it has to be the Geula is going to come. It has to be the Mashiach's around the corner. And seemingly, Mashiach was around the corner. And that next stage is the famous, the infamous, false Mashiach of Shabzai Tzvi, which we'll perhaps talk about at another opportunity. This was Yehuda Geber with another podcast of Jewish History Soundbites. You can email me at ygebss at gmail.com for any questions, comments, sources, or to reserve tours to go to these amazing places and experience it and see it. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Don't miss an episode of our podcast. If you enjoy, give a, give a good rating, share it with your friends and family. You can follow... Um, Jewish History Soundbites on Twitter at J Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.